Hello, everyone. Getting the room set up. Thanks for joining. Our normal host, Scott, is out of the office today. So my name is Matt, and I will be the host. I'm getting all our speakers. Ishan is here. Daniel is here. Michael, I saw that you raised your hand. I approved it. I don't know if you changed your mind, but feel free to come up on stage. We love community con contributions. And uh, while you're doing that, I will just kick us off and fill in for Scott. Welcome to JavaScript Jam Live. JavaScript Jam is a podcast for front-end and full-stack developers. JavaScript Jam Live is our every week, Wednesday at 12 p.m. in the San Francisco time zone, open mic for anything JavaScript and web development related. We always come with some topics to discuss. Of which we'll have no topics today, I'm sure. I couldn't tell if you were being sarcastic <laughs> or not, but we love to be as audience-driven as possible. So look, when we're talking on something, feel free to raise your hand. This is a Twitter space, so it's very audience-driven. And raise your hand, we'll bring you up to the stage. You can introduce a topic or you can comment, add your voice to what we're talking about. And our favorite episodes are ones where actually somebody in the audience asks a question and somebody in the audience answers it. And lastly, whether you're a beginner or an expert, we want to hear from you. Don't be intimidated. We'll go from the most sophisticated topics to, I think, every other episode somebody's asking about how to break into the industry. So with that said, Anthony, were you being sarcastic or were you... For, do you know whether there is something happening today? Have you seen this? No, I haven't. I've been so heads down. Okay. In words. Uh, yeah. Okay. And that makes sense. You just have to look into it. So if you had, I'm pretty sure you're following enough people to see this. <laughs> oh, okay. So let me pull it up. Okay, so and I'll break it down for people in the eyes. I've been following this for like three hours. So there's a hot drama happening between guess who, Remix, and another framework. <laughs> so <laughs> Ryan has a very bad habit of getting very angry at things and then immediately going on Twitter, writing an incredibly angry tweet about it, blasting out to the world, and then walking away for three hours, let everyone figure out what actually happened. Then he comes back and deletes the tweet. And then he pretends like the whole thing didn't happen. He's done this at least three times. I've seen him do this. <laughs> and so basically someone in the solid docs copy pasted some stuff from the remix docs. And they're like, oh, they're stealing stuff from remix. And it's not really clear how they got into the docs because Dan, who's in charge of the docs, was accused of a bunch of stuff. He said, I didn't do this. This was conversion from someone else by accident. If we knew this, we would have fixed it. So it was like a small kind of minor thing that Ryan could have just sent a message to them to work it out and say, hey, this is not cool. Either like credit us or take this out. They would have been like, yeah, you're right. We'll credit you or take this out. But instead, he just goes online, swinging his thing around and just being a douche. So I don't know. I have no patience for Ryan anymore. I think this is ridiculous. I think it makes him look really bad. I think Dan is being attacked for no reason. I don't know. I just makes you really mad. Tell us how you really feel. So I'm catching up to this. And I saw the, I saw the now screenshotted tweet. Basically, let's be clear. A piece of documentation from the Remix framework was, it looks like, literally copy-pasted into the documentation of SolidJS. Yes, and that uh, did happen. That is correct. There's literally, like, okay. it's obvious. You can see it. You put the two next to each other. It's the thing. So yes, they are correct. They're not making that part up. Okay. It should be very clear. I assume that SolidJS documentation is tracked in GitHub. And so it should be really clear how this happened. Like, anyone should be able to understand in a matter of minutes. And I went back and it was someone who I have no idea who they are. They don't seem to have a lot of presence with all they English might not even be their first language. So there's so many people involved with this stuff and there was things that happened that didn't go through the right lines of communication. And I think that they've referenced other pieces from the remix docs before, but they did credit it. So it may be that they meant to credit it, but they didn't. So hard to say. And by the way, I saw the the Will Smith slap meme on this that you tweeted out if you want to go to Anthony's. Yeah, if you go to my Twitter and watch the last five or six tweets of Senate, I have been related to this if you want to see more. Which is, yeah, I'll say it's a very actually apropos use of the meme. But I, so my gut reaction, and I know they are known for necessarily being most diplomatic, but I could understand on first blush why Ryan might be upset. And I do think, I don't see why it's so off base. Can you explain to me for him to just be like, hey, this looks like a literal copy and paste. And yeah, he could maybe spend a few minutes to go through it, but he can see it's 
it doesn't look good. Yeah, I agree. More diplomatic to go. It's about how you respond to it. It's about how you choose your own actions. You get to decide what you do with that. So you can decide to ask questions and figure out what happened, or you can decide to go throw a hissy fit on Twitter for no, just without actually figuring out what happens. That's up to him. Is putting a screenshot and capturing it for posterity a hissy fit? No, that's what I did to him. I'm saying the fact that he like claimed that these people are doing something bad for XYZ reason. But well, okay, so first off, these aren't the yeah. solid docs. These aren't the solid start docs. There are no solid start docs. The solid start docs are a completely separate repo that's being worked on by Dan that I've looked at. Yeah, yeah. These are not even the solid start. Solid start is not even released. Wait, so you're saying somebody also oh, solid start is in development. It's not their publicly facing docs. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, okay. So I misunderstood. So nobody saw this, really. It's as if, unless you're like diving into these repos and finding these like commits. Uh, and found the okay. commit, added Ryan in the GitHub, and then he saw, and then he went and flipped out about it. But this is not. If you go like the actual solid.com, you won't see this. Sure, and it's like the it's the it's kind of like the next spin up for solid. God, I've used it before. If anything, I feel like Ryan should be flattered. Like, at least they're big enough to be copied. That's one perspective. I, I'm looking at the tweet he sent. And I think he's... So now I have a better understanding of, I think, Anthony, why you feel like he's... Like, he had to go looking for this. It was never publicly released. It's like in the sausage being made. I To be completely candid, I can't see the other side of it. Like, without... The other side. You wouldn't know the other side if I didn't tell it to you. Because Ryan wouldn't have given you the other side. That's true. That's true. And he could have gone more diplomatically and just said to the, and actually gone through the commit history. What do I want to say? Like, isn't a remake open source? I saw Tim's tweet about it. I was curious. It is open source. Yeah. I think what it's, so the license lets you do this. That's not, I think what he's, I think it just feels weird if you work on something and it's your heart and soul and it's your baby and somebody takes pieces of it and you're like, that is literally pieces of it there. And to be, I feel like they probably feel, I don't know what the right word is. They were doing nested routes as a feature and sure enough, that's now being copied. It was an innovative move, but look, it's an ecosystem everyone learns from each other, but it's not like they copied the code. It's not like they copied the literal text. And like in the grand scheme of things, this is not a, a this is not going to sink or swim them. So they could have gone th- about it a different way. But I think it just I think he he reacted from an emotional place. And, yeah, and I know, and I I think that's totally like people are valid to have their emotions. But I think you're someone with as large of a platform who's putting messages out into the world that are related to other people doing things that are right or wrong. You also have a responsibility to do that in a way where you're not putting someone on blast without all the information being made available. That's my issue. So your problem is that he blasted out to everyone. In a way where it clearly did not, it only told one side of the story. Got it. And uh, I just think it, it yeah. shouldn't have been a public thing at all. That's why I think he should have talked to them. And he should have messaged them and he should have said, hey, this isn't cool. And they would have agreed with him and they would have said, yes, we need to fix this. And so... The whole thing could have been worked out. The whole thing didn't need to blow up like this. It was because of the way he decided to react to it that it had to blow up this way. I okay in this in the grand scheme of Twitter reactions, I like maybe he just wanted to capture for posterity that this happened. So if there's a but then he wouldn't have deleted it if he cared about capture for posterity. Well, that's true. Can't maybe down <laughs> later. Yeah. Look, I don't. I guess I haven't been following every single tweet, but so let me understand. What do you think is the consequence of him? Blasting it out publicly like this. In people the- who were interested in Solid and who have been hearing Solid's cool and up and coming. Oh, those Solid douches are just a bunch of plagiarists. I should never even use Solid. Got it. Okay. But that's the take a lot of people had looking at that one tweet and then walking away for the rest of the day. And yeah, this is only even the documentation. It's not even how they work. It's not like you and I would know that doesn't make any sense because they're fundamentally different. Fundament- they're both very different. That wouldn't make sense. And this is just about the documentation. But I totally understand what you're saying here. Was there a similar yeah. thing that happened with Nested when Next sent out their proposal for Nested Routes? Yeah. 
pretty much identical. Yeah, he tweeted about it and freaked out about it. And then the next team was like, yeah, okay, we'll give you credit, sure. And then a bunch of people were like, hey, guess what? Kit did this actually before both of you suck it. So Yeah, so that gets me to the point where, and that was a great question to ask, because that is my extrapolation that they must feel underappreciated or underacknowledged for their contributions or their innovations. And so for them, from their side, it looks like a, I don't know, a pattern. So I, I have to say I'm empathetic to, to both sides to a certain extent. And the other part that we got to remember, I'm trying to just put myself in their shoes, which is they built Remix for a long time before it was open source. And then they've, and they were toiling away and they probably didn't get enough recognition for what Remix was doing. And then, then they finally open sourced it. And as they started picking up steam they're they now feel like they're maybe being copied by other folks in the ecosystem, which is part of the natural process of the ecosystem. And really they haven't gotten any recognition that like, I just, uh, I don't hear that. I think they're the most talked about framework of all of 2021. Everyone's talking about remakes. They're incredibly hyped up. Everyone's saying they're changing the game. They like, they got plenty of credit. That's okay. So you're right. My statement was inaccurate. It is there. If there's any, you're absolutely right. They're, they've been hyped, but they might feel like they haven't gotten maybe the deservedness, but I'm not going to sit here and put myself in, 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 in their head yeah, too much. And I, like I said, I, this partly, this is based on a pattern of behavior of Ryan that I'm looking at is not just this one specific individual situation, which is in all of these situations, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of, some people are in the right and some people were in the wrong. But every single time when this happens and you go blow it up on Twitter, it has worse, like, downstream effects than if you just reach out to people and try and work it out in private. And then you'll build trust and you'll build better relationships and you'll build a healthier, more collaborative and source ecosystem. That is what is important to me. Uh, yeah. So what do you think? I, I guess. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I guess that's just a question of what is the temperament that is required for open, major open source maintainers? So it's probably getting... The diplomatic way is to say that is to look at it from that perspective as a major void in the ecosystem. How should you react when bad things happen? And not that I'm going to police how people react, but that's just, it's probably the, the way to look at this. And as someone who's been part of a couple of significant frameworks over the years, to see something that copied or inspired by is definitely frustrating especially if you're not the main if you're not the winner the main player on the stage anymore but anyway yeah it's i can understand it but how you react publicly and the approach that you take is there's a maturity level there that maybe would help elevate the the dialogue and the discourse in the open source community so yeah i i don't want to spend too much on what is i don't know psychology yeah i got to know that yeah yeah but I, what do you think the consequences of this are? Like for the popularity of both frameworks, or is this minimal. probably going to minimal? It's hard to say because you may bring more attention to solid like that. And all news is good news kind of thing. So yeah, I think it's hard to say what the consequences will be. Most of the stuff ends up being a wash after. Yeah. And well, maybe, I learned on this yeah. call that, that solid is doing an next like thing. So I didn't, I had known that before now. So. Maybe there's no news is or all, all publicity is good publicity. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think the consequences more have to do with the ongoing relationship between the different teams and how the kind of alliances are drawn and things like that. Because a lot of people will see stuff like this and they won't know there's like a much, much larger narrative actually going on here that's like across many years. So yeah, it's just a, another link in the ever epic story of open source frameworks. That's actually the part that I'm probably like only I'm not as in it as you are to connect that narrative together. And it's something Theo in, in previous episodes has alluded to that the relationships between some frameworks and like React are different. Clearly, this was not, I think, intentional. It looks like not clearly, but that's my assumption. But I, I think we've covered this one. Unless you have, uh, anybody else has any other thoughts on this? By the way, okay. Ramon or Mike, if you guys want to hop up and join the conversation, please do. What else we got going on this week, Ishan? Okay. Okay. Let me go to, to our notes off. The other thing that came up over the past week, and actually, Anthony, you were part of this one, was a conversation about Core of Vitals and Lighthouse. Oh, sweet. And, yeah. And like the conversation I tweet blasted out. <laughs> yeah. And then this week, I think it was it yesterday? 
there was a Smashing Magazine. Let me double check. Uh, yeah, there's a Smashing Magazine article. It was from yesterday called Core Vitals Tools to Boost Your Web Performance Scores. But the tweet that you and I were on, I think a few days ago, was somebody using Lighthouse to measure performance. And we used to talk a lot about this. And I come from a performance background, so overcompensated and didn't talk about this. But I thought it'd be a useful thing to just revisit Lighthouse, Core of Vitals, and how you measure a performance website. Because it's something that comes up every once in a while again. And it seems like there's a lot of confusion. I guess I'll start at the beginning. Core of Vitals and Lighthouse, are those terms, first of all, that people feel like they're very... People here with. will definitely know Lighthouse. I think it would be useful to explain what is, what is Lighthouse doing to build on top of Core of Vitals. Because Core of Vitals is like the underlying metrics we use. And then Lighthouse is like a tool that lets you discover those metrics. That's how I would describe it. I, maybe I'm too close to the weeds. I would say the biggest difference between Core Web Vitals and Lighthouse is a synthetic lab measurement. It is a measurement of... Oh, those measurements are Core Web Vital measurements. Not always. There's a subset. There's a... And the a, numbers are. The, like the, well, the performance numbers are. There's, oh, so Lighthouse will track. Let's start with Lighthouse. So let's not put labels to things and just describe what they do. So Lighthouse runs your web page. It used to be the first load, but now you can actually record user flows and interactions, which is a great improvement. And it will keep track of a number of different metrics as you do that. So it'll look at a metric called largest contentful paint. How long does it take for the largest image above the fold to render. And then another one it will look at is a metric called time to interactive, which is a measure of how long it takes the, basically the simplest way to say it is the JavaScript on the page to be done executing at first load so that it's now ready for the user to respond. There's another one, which is first contentful paint. How long does it take for any piece of content to be drawn on the page? Doesn't have to be an image. So it's got a collection of metrics and it then measures how long those take, which is usually it simulates on your desktop. It slows the loading of the browser down. Actually, what it no longer does, it no longer does that. It actually lets it run at normal speed and then extrapolates what it, the slower version would be, depending on which Lighthouse setting you use. And then it compares that against some benchmark. So let's say your LCP is you know, 1.5 seconds. It'll then look at what LCP is for the broad set of websites on the web. And let's say the median value is some number of seconds. It'll then compare that and give you a numerical score from one to a hundred relative to how your LCP matches the rest of the distribution of LCPs on the web. And then it weights each of those into a calculation that gives you a score from one to a hundred of what your Lighthouse score is. So that was a really complex explanation. But the key thing is that it takes a bunch of measurements of your web page by simulating how the page loads. Okay. So Core Web Vitals can be used to refer to two things. There's a subset of those metrics that Lighthouse also tracks that are used by Chrome browser to measure real user behavior when they're actually on your website. So there's millions of people, maybe billions, using the Chrome browser. And as they're interacting with your website, Google and Chrome are keeping track of performance data. They're not necessarily tracking users, but they're tracking how long that domain takes and that URL takes to load the largest image or how long it takes that JavaScript to execute. And so the key difference here is this is the behavior of real users and not a simulation on your page. And they look at a subset of the metrics that Lighthouse looks at. With me so far, or should I pause here for questions? Yeah, no, that was good. Okay. So the key thing to know is that when Google ranks your site by page speed, so your page speed, and we all know that page speed means a faster website should get you faster conversions. But what Google now started doing is saying that a faster website will now mean you get a higher rank in your organic search results than a competitor who may be slower. So 
that means people who haven't even visited your site or would not have visited your site to begin with, if you improve your performance, will now get there. That's like the type of thing you would throw ad budget at. Let me spend money to bring people to my site. Now improving your speed brings new people to your site. That's a huge change. It's very significant for a lot of businesses because many of them, organic search traffic can be 50% or more of your traffic. And so Google looks at Core Web Vitals and they don't look at Lighthouse, which means they look at how real user behavior is on your website. And Core Web Vitals is three metrics, largest contentful paint, another metric called first input delay, which measures how long the JavaScript takes when on first load. And then another one called cumulative layout shift, which is actually not a performance metric. It's a user experience metric. It measures how long it takes for elements to settle on the page when you load a web page. So basically how much things jump around on a web page during that browsing and loading. And those three metrics and only those three metrics are used to measure and rank your site in search results. And they only come from real users. And so the key thing here is it is possible to get a low lighthouse score like in the thirties and still be passing core web vitals. It's, I suppose, possible for the opposite to be true, although I've seen that less common. And so the key message here is the very first thing you want to do when you evaluate your website is to look at it in terms of how Google rank its performance, if that's your goal, which is you know, an ROI for performance. And look at what the core of vital scores are, because they may not, they, you may be passing and Lighthouse might tell you to go fix the wrong things that don't matter to your core of vital score. And an example of this is there was a, if you remember when the first COVID vaccines ran, rolled out, every state in the US had a, their department of health was in charge of rolling out the vaccines. And so one of the online journals did a comparison of all 50 COVID vaccine websites across every state and looked at their accessibility and their performance all through Lighthouse. And the issue was that Lighthouse was entirely synthetic. And if you looked at the core of vital score, which is actual user behavior and user impacts, you'd see that there were some sites that had one that had a 30 and one that had an 80, but the largest contentful paint was the same for both of them for actual users. And so the question is like, how does that happen? I'll give you some examples of how that could happen. If your users happen to be using a faster internet connection, or your users happen to be from a demographic that has a more powerful phone, your core web vital score is going to be better than the same identical site with a different audience. Um, uh, if there are certain things about how Lighthouse measures a very stringent bar, which is a, it used to be like a 3G mobile phone and a version of Android, really tailored to, I would say, more an international context than reflection of, say, the U.S. domestic context. And so it can grade things a lot harsher than what actually happens in real life. And I tweeted this out at the time. There's a talk I gave, I think it was a year ago at React Day New York that walked through this example. And you can see across the 50 sites, how they compare in Lighthouse, which is what the journal published and here, what Core of Vital said. And you could see that they weren't always correlated. They're very loosely, but there's not a very strong correlation. So how, that's how do you think that, here. how do yeah. you think we can build a culture of testing across different tools like that. I think this to me gets at why I think this can be an issue because every measurement is useful to a point, but they're in isolation. They can always be misleading. So this is actually in that talk in, in, I think it was React Day New York. Let me see if I can find it. React. I think I, I replied to your tweet with it, but basically what you need to do is you need a framework for how you think about it and you deploy the right tool at the right time. So the simplest framework I proposed was to say, start with your core of vitals to see where you truly stand. Then calibrate the results you get at a lighthouse to your results in core of vitals. And if your lighthouse goes up or down, it'll affect that core of vital, but you'll know that it's not going to be the lighthouse might say your LCP is extremely bad and it got worse and it got worse, but it may not fail by that number. Don't take that number literally. 
correlate it to what your core of vitals was for the old number. And that's probably the best way to reconcile it. And different tools have different places. And this again is in that framework. And the reason why you correlate them is because it is based on real user behavior. Your core web vital score is published by Google on a rolling average across 28 days. So what this means is you roll out a change to optimize your website. You don't know if it's actually going to improve your core web vitals. It's like an A-B test. Uh, you have to wait potentially 20, 28 days, or you have to wait for that traffic to come in if you use a third-party RUM tool, which Geo has and a bunch of other folks have, that will tell you, our RUM tool will tell you your results in minutes. But you still want to get some amount of valid data, wait a few days, to know whether that optimization you rolled out actually improved your performance for real users. You don't really know to have done that A-B test. But if you have to wait a few days or, you know, that long for every single change, it becomes really hard to take a website and optimize it. And that's where Lighthouse is really useful because with Lighthouse, you can run a thousand simulations. You can be like, what happens if I take this library out? Okay, what happens if I delay the loading of this? What happens if I move this below the fold? How is that going to impact my LCP or one of my core of vitals or my Lighthouse core? That you can run a thousand different experiments in the lab, so to speak, on your device to see what's likely to actually improve your user's core of vital scores. And so you start by core of vitals, look how it correlates to Lighthouse, then sit in with your laptop for a few days and try a bunch of experiments against Lighthouse, knowing how it correlates to your core of vitals, and then roll out your result live to your users, ideally maybe test, so you can know whether it actually improves your core of vitals or not. And so you need to use the right tool at the right spot so to speak. Does that address kind of the question you're raising? It's a good question. And then you always, you've always told me this about this, but other ways to do this, like you want to actually do rum real user monitoring, right? You don't want to do synthetic stuff. Yep. Yeah. So Lighthouse is synthetic. I use, I'm using Core of Vitals as, Core of Vitals, if you get the data from Google, it is called the Chrome User Experience Report or CRUX. And it is, I would, the phrase is, it's a ROM of least resort, of last resort. It's Google's collecting the data, but they don't give it to you every, every day. They give it to you on this rolling 28 day basis. And it's not broken out necessarily the way you want to think of your site. So it might be just for your domain. You can get it by age and only limited time forms. Like you want to know if you've got a performance issue, it may be just affecting your product pages but not your homepage or your category page, if you're, say, an e-commerce site. And so you want a tool that lets you triangulate where the problem really lies, in addition to being able to roll an experiment out and then know the next day whether you've improved it. And Google's tools don't let you fine-tune drill. They try to, but they don't really give you that data, and they've got that long 28-day latency. So I would say you need to know both, but I would look at RUM as the ground truth and the validation step. And I would look at Lighthouse and synthetic testing as what you do your experiments on in terms of coming up with ideas. And then when you roll them out, you have to go back to that ground truth of RUM or core web vitals to see what really improved things. So one thing I did learn I was interesting yeah. from this whole thing is that, because when I tweeted some stuff about this and someone from the Lighthouse team, I think sent me a message and they're like, hey, have you seen this? And they're like, have you heard the user flow thing? Yes, that's the recorder. And now you can go through, so it used to be Lighthouse would only let you record first load. And I, I actually wrote like a column like four years ago saying the problem with Lighthouse is it only measures first load. So you can't look at the whole flow a user takes and record those types of things, especially in a single page application where they load and the first load of a single page application takes a while, but then they click through five different pages and it takes a while. Sorry, it's really fast. Lighthouse wouldn't capture it because it would load each of those kind of transitions as independent page loads. And so it would penalize some of the fastest sites because of that. So that, that user flow recorder, I think is what they're referring to, is definitely, definitely improvement. I'm excited they did that. I'm just like, I'm getting like all these messages and all these tweets and stuff about the last thing. <laughs> I'm, a bit, I'm a bit distracted here. I don't know. About, you mean the latest with the remix? Yeah, yeah, because now Fred K. Shaw's tweeting about it and yeah, it's a... Ooh, Twitter, man. Oh, yeah. Twitter. What is What was Fred's take, if you were to summarize it? Yeah. Fred was 
like it has been zero days since the remix team started a fight with another open source project on Twitter and then deleted their tweets. Okay, so the, I, I'm surprised you didn't use the Simpsons meme with the zero days since incident. Anyways, so that's the performance stuff. We're just past the halfway point. Let me see if there are any questions, then I'll do what I call our normal station break. I think we're good. Okay, great. If you just have been joining us, welcome to JavaScript Jam Live. JavaScript Jam is a podcast for front-end and full-stack developers. Anything web development or JavaScript is on topic. This is basically, we like to call it an open mic. Anyone from the audience is welcome to raise a topic, is welcome to ask questions or comment on something we're talking about. And we'd love to be audience-driven as much as possible. And whether you're a beginner or an expert, we want to hear from you. Feel free to raise your hand. There's a button in Twitter and we'll bring you up to the stage. And we'd love to hear what other folks are interested in hearing about. And we love it when the audience actually asks the question and somebody else in the audience is able to answer it. Let's move on then. The other thing that caught my attention, and this is actually going back two weeks ago, is there's Google postponing their third-party cookie phase-out. And it's not clear if people are aware that third-party cookies are going away. And curious if other of our routine speakers had a thought or noticed this or thought it's not really impactful. Sorry, about what? The phase out, Google is delaying their third party cookie phase out, but there's definitely this clear pressure to eventually phase out third party cookies. And they've done a bunch of things around Flock and Fledge. I don't know how much people have been following this. We can go into more detail, but I think it would be great. I think third party cookies, like I don't want sites to be able to track me around other sites. I don't know why anyone would ever want any company to ever be able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So I like that goal in principle. But to me, this is, I don't know, a scary place because there's so much on the web that I feel like depends on third-party cookies. And is that stuff that is good or that anyone wants? That's a good question. Some of it, yes, and some of it, no. So give me the yes. What's the yes? So the yes is the ability of shared logins. The other yes is the one that's more controversial, which is the ability to have better targeted advertising that supports some subset of the web ecosystem. And there is a, an argument to me that advertising drives too much of the web ecosystem. But I think advertising yeah. by laws is like opt-in. If people can say, I want to opt into being tracked, all of my behavior to be tracked all across here. And that people can sell me better stuff. That's great. That should be opt-in and opt-out. Got it. And the first so, thing said yeah. about shared login, I'm sure that can be accomplished without cookies somehow. Yeah, they're going to find ways to do that. I'm confident they'll find a way to do that. But there's a good there's a good episode of, what's his name? Benedict Evans' podcast, where he's, you start with this idea you don't want to be tracked. And then he walks it down the line and he's like, look, it's just, at some point, it's like Procter & Gamble just being like, I just want to sell, show ads to diapers for people who are most likely to want to buy them. And that's what they're trying to do. And they're not trying to necessarily spy. That's why that ad follows you around. And that that feels like a little ne- less nefarious. But And then the other concern with third-party cookies going away is the proposals to replace it, like Flock and Fledge, a lot of third-party advertising providers have felt like it benefits the existing incumbents and locks them out. And so those have been some of the objections to it. I don't know if other folks have thoughts, concerns, or is this something that as a developer, you're like, I don't think about this. I, just tell me what to implement, I implement it. Is the Flock standard, is that still on the table? I thought that was not being considered anymore. No, Flock has been, yeah, Flock is going away. And now it got replaced with something else called Ledge. And to be honest, I haven't been following closely enough. I think Ledge might also be off the table. I'm not sure what's going to replace that. But you're right. That, thank you for the clarification. Flock is going away. We have, uh, look, it looks like we've got Theo. Oh, we had Theo in here. I was going to say, might have some spicy take on Remix there. But Oh, yeah. That would have been good. Just for a sec. Hey, you guess he's gone. Never mind. That definitely seems to be the topic of the day. One thing I, yes. one thing I wanted to add was, maybe this is not really that advanced to take here, but seems like Remix is able to turn serverless into server full in a way, like their ability to where you have next, let's say we used to, I posted it in reply to this just as part of the thread for the conversation, but made a blog post about Remix, but it was more about Jamstack. 
in general, in my opinion. And he was just saying, yeah, we used to create a separate express and then a react app and then put them together and deploy them together, like in a mono repo, essentially on Heroku and then get all that work together and stuff like that. But now we just combine the two in the Jamstack app next or remix and deploy on Vercel or now fire or something like that. I thought that is a really incredible way of looking at it. And one thing I was thinking about the difference between like next and remix, not to get into like a shooting war here, but like remix, it, it plugs the serverless in for you. So you don't have to go out to AWS and create a separate serverless function for each thing you want to call or whatever, just tucks it right there in the API folder. Whereas a remix creates like a serverful environment almost out of, out of these serverless, basically like serverless routes, but treating everything like a, everything like a serverless route, not just the API, whatever, but it was just, it's crazy. Like how they wired everything up in such a way that they're able to deploy on all these different places. Like they completely modularized it in a way that they can deploy on all these different crazy stuff like Arch architect and which I believe is AWS centric. I'm not exactly sure, but cell Netlify and all these other different hosts based on some kind of crazy stuff they're doing with express code. And they, I just thought it was amazing how they managed to, to manipulate it in that way to make it so dynamic. And I don't know, just, I just want to add that. So just so I understand, you're saying that the way remix lens can deploy to both serverful and serverless, you found refreshing compared to how Next does it? I love them both. I think they're amazing frameworks. Yeah. Next is great if you just need some API routes with your, uh, with your remix, uh, with your, excuse me, with your React app, you some, hit some API routes and then remix is a little bit more involved, like you want to get into it, but yeah, you can connect right to the database right there, like how Blitz does it, but a little bit different. Anyways, no, I wasn't really compare. I wasn't really comparing the two frameworks. I was just making a note of how they manipulated the serverless routes in such a way to, to almost treat it like, like a serverful, make creating everything dynamic, like not just one route, but like it can have an ongoing or just, I don't know, maybe I'm off and I'm off in the weeds. You could just disregard it. No, I want to, no, I think it's good. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I feel like they do a really good job extracting in a way. Like when you use remix, it definitely. I feel like it feels more complete. I use Next because I, it's what I prefer, but at the same time, when using Remix, it definitely feels like a more complete solution because of that and the ability to be dynamic between the different strategies you can use. I feel like you can accomplish the same things with Next, of course, but out of the box, Remix just, it has a very much, you're up and going, I feel like it's much more streamlined. And they do a good job of extracting the way. Thank you, you saved me. It feels to me like Remix came from, I'm extrapolating maybe a little bit of past that. Remix were, were people who still liked classic server architecture with a CDN in front of a server, in front of a database. And Next had some of that, but also tried to incorporate elements of Jamstack. And that kind of muddied the model a little bit. And do you feel like that's what led to what you're describing here? Or am I extrapolating too strongly? Maybe I don't even know what I'm talking about. I just, I feel like everything is dynamic. I cannot tell the difference is if I were to go onto like digital ocean and, and install Node.js and whatever, put up an express app with a remix app in front of it and then combine the two with whatever that's called. I, I forgot the name of it, but with the Webpack, if I were to do all of that, I feel like I get the exact same result if I just spin up a remix app and everything is, I can hit any route I want, just as if I were hitting any, anything in Express. But it's, I, I feel like it's the same effect as running like a fully serverful application, as opposed to hitting one single API route, which Maybe, like I said, it's probably not the most complete take. Maybe I fully mm -hmm. don't understand the space as well as I should, but it just feels like everything, it feels like everything is all dynamic all the time, as opposed to just in one blitz. No, I actually agree with you. And I think if you're used to how it was before, like actually coupling Express with React Remix does feel a lot more natural, um, at least from my experience. 
Now, like I, I was like an early adopter of Next before it was super popular, but it it really solved a major challenge at the time. Was also more difficult to deploy than other Jamstack methods because back then Netlify and Vercel were really just promoting their use with Gatsby or other static page generators, not so much server side rendered. But now that they're all supporting, it, it opens up the area for both. But I do feel the same way about Remix, very similar to how you described it, and I think it's probably just from what we experienced before and it's transitioning over. I feel like when you're in next, you're building a lot more in the box than you are out of the box, having things ready to go. Remix definitely feels like it's good to go right there and abstracts a lot of it away. I think then we're saying the same thing. I don't know if my extrapolation is accurate as to no, that's, Yeah, I, I agree. I think so. I think we're all saying pretty much the same baseline. I think that and it's used Blitz as the reference. That's when it really clicks for me. Blitz is very much like framework it feels like Rails, like you, you get up and going, you follow the docs, you don't have to worry about maintaining anything. It's just ready to go. Whereas next, you are building out each layer of it, even though you do have a framework behind it. It's not a complete framework. It's definitely using more of the React mentality of build your own solution as you go, unless you're plugging into microservices along the way. So that's just my take on it, though. Blitz is an interesting touch point. He was, we've had him on JavaScript Jam, the podcast and JavaScript Jam Live in the past. I think he was actually one of our first speakers for when we migrated over to Twitter spaces. I'm curious if folks are using Blitz in production and what their experience has been with it. Because that promise of, we're going to give you the equivalent of Ruby on Rails, but it's entirely JavaScript, was just like really exciting. It's something Redwood also is promising. What? what? Redwood? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, we should definitely open this up to, to not only Blitz, but Blitz and Redwood. I yeah. love using Redwood. I haven't used it full production yet, but just walking through it and using it, it definitely feels the most similar to Rails without being so coupled to anything particular. I feel like with Blitz, you, you're a little bit more tied to what you're using. Maybe it's changed since the last time I used it. There's a problem with this whole conversation, which is yes. you can't talk about Blitz at all right now because blitz is going to change the blitz that was blitz will not be the blitz that will be and the blitz that will be is not really being used or released yet so there is no conversation of blitz that is like really useful to have right now to like right. figure out what blitz is going to be and then make it that and then we can all talk about what it is that what it might be yeah brandon has a believe it's brandon has a lot of things going on so i it's been about a year since i've touched blitz but then I didn't know he was doing a lot more in development. So, so there's a new maintainer now who's in charge with Alexandra, who if people are been in the Blitz community for a while, people know who she is. She also works for flight control. So someone else has taken it on and is like leading it. And I, I have like faith that it's going to be cool. And that eventually they're going to figure it out. Like this whole like long transition pivot thing, I think it was like a huge mistake. And I, I don't think it's really worked out very well for them. So I've been a huge supporter of Blitz, despite being like a quote unquote competitor. To Redwood, when I started FSGM, the point was to talk about the fact that there were these two, two cool new full stack frameworks. So like, I'm fully in support of Blitz, but I think that it's like having a conversation about it right now is essentially impossible because it does not exist in the state. It's going too soon. I think for me, it's really just the comparison to Rails. That's what, that's what really brings it up. Yeah, and I feel like that your original Blitz was Railsier than Redwood in the sense that Redwood gives you a decoupled front end, back end in the architecture and it like hides it from you to make it feel railsy, but the architecture is not actually a monolith. It gives you the illusion of a monolith, whereas Blitz is the monolith. So, Got it. And I think a good example of that, actually, I think what you're just talking about is under the hood, Redwood is using GraphQL between the front end and the back end, which means it's easy to stick a native app on top or something like that, that that might get introduced and it's just another service your app will talk to. I assume that's still the case. What is the latest on what Blitz will be from your understanding? It's been changing. That's the thing is it first started as it's going to be a backend toolkit that front end framework agnostic. And there's like a whole list of features they wanted to add. Then they walk that back and they're like, no, it's still going to be a full stack framework, but we're going to allow you to swap out next for other things. And so not entirely clear exactly what it's going to be, and this comes back to me saying it's hard to talk about because the not only are they, is there no thing to say what it is, the thing they're saying it's going to be is shifting. What's the reaction do you in the Blitz community in your read of it? Split. Some people are really excited about it. 
some people were like, hey, like I got a production app and it's kind of a thing. So then they started saying, we're going to make the migration seamless. <laughs> and that is just like, all right, well, good luck with that. They're in a really tough spot. Like I, I really sympathize with them. It's a very tough spot to be. Yeah, it's funny. So I've been using React since Flux. I've always, like when it first started gaining popularity and Angular was more dominant at the time, I was all about it. But at the same time, it was so hard for me to justify switching from Rails to JavaScript ecosystem. I feel like nothing was as plug and play as Rails. And even to this day, with all of the attempts that have happened, whether you're comparing Rails and Laravel or whatever it might be, I don't feel like JavaScript has really gotten there with any of the frameworks yet to where it feels the same. Like, I still feel like I'm better off, especially on a project that isn't guaranteed to scale, popping up Rails or starting a Laravel project than I am adopting the JavaScript ecosystem in a lot of ways, because I feel like there is so much, so much work that has to be done just to get the basics under control. And I can't wait for the day to come where it actually does feel like a Rails ecosystem, whether it's using serverless or monolithic or whatever it might be, just having that ability to quickly MVP a project and really get it out there without having to do a ton of prep work would be huge. And one of the frameworks that I actually explored early on was called Adonis.js. I don't know if it's still around, but it was very Laravel-esque. And it was one of the better ones that had happened at the time, but it didn't just this just didn't have the adoption. Seeing Redwood pop up, Blitz, so on and so forth, it's exciting to see it go in that direction. It's just taken such a long time to get there. Do you think we will get there? Like, it feels like it's, they used to say, like, artificial intelligence, it's always five years away. It, I thought it would have happened by now. Honestly, when I saw Redwood and Blitz come out, I was like, finally, I've, I felt like when they were just announced, I felt like we needed this yesterday. And it's surprising that the JavaScript JavaScript ecosystem hasn't met that challenge. And I wonder if there's something fundamental there. I think it's, I think it's cultural. I really do. I feel a lot of it is, at least in the early days, it was, let's do this without opinions. Let's get away from Angular and its opinions. And then it was, okay, now we need opinions in order to create structure and to create consistency and to rapidly develop. And then these frameworks pop up and it abandoned. every time a new framework came into the ecosystem, it would get abandoned and then the opinions would get rewritten. And then it would be like, we don't want to follow opinions. We want to do this free form. Everything shouldn't be black box or pre-done for you like it is in Rails. Because Rails, it's very much black box, right? If you're really using the ecosystem for what it's worth, half of your code, you, you're not even really sure what it's doing unless you're diving into the different gems. And I feel like the culture in JavaScript world is so different. People want to go under the hood. They want to control what's happening. Everything is it's so different than it was in Rails culture. Rails culture wasn't about that. It was about getting the solution to market as fast as possible and worrying about scaling later. Laravel was the same way. It was how do we get an admin dashboard up today? It wasn't about how to do this with the most performance-grade modern technology. It just didn't work that way. So I feel like the ecosystem and the culture kind of fight against each other in a lot of ways. And I'm not sure if it will get there, but I hope that it does because I enjoy JavaScript significantly more than the other two. Interesting. Anthony, what are, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts. We've got only a few minutes left, but no, I, like, just, I, always, yeah. I always have a million thoughts and things about all this stuff. That's why I have a two year long running podcast about it. But yeah, I mean, I never used rails, so I can't really say, you know, anything about it and how it relates to other things. All I know is I like using Redwood. I think it's dope. I think more people should use Redwood. I agree with that. I do. I really enjoy real Redwood. I almost called it Railswood. <laughs> I ne if you don't mind if I yeah. add something I never I'm with Anthony I, I never used Rails either although I heard people rave and rant and rave about it and it, it's usability and it's so quick and everything I know Twitter started with that one thing I think JavaScript is doing a strangler pattern with older tech like Java these monolithic apps like one of the things the cloud version of the what is it called it's a it's a it's a reverse proxy that's it's an api gateway and it's called it's called what is that api gateway called that you can do the gosh what is it name anyways it was saying that 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 the jvm is a monolithic app that doesn't scale and they had to convert everything to javascript and i will think of the name sorry let me uh, let me look it up sure now you've got me on is this related to spring ecosystem it was Kong. You guys know Kong, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wait, yeah. 
Yeah, there's like a cloud version of that now. Yeah, these guys are going to know Kong way better than Theo's crowd. You, you brought this up on another space we were on. I bet they yeah. know a lot about yeah. Kong. Yeah, yeah. I was looking into that. Just like how you, if you want to do an SSO, for example, if you add multiple sites, let's say you have a back end and it has its own admin page and you have front end and it's, there are two independent, let's say next sites that I forgot the name of the CMS tool that uses like GraphQL translates or whatever, but it's for the thing and you have two different it's what's his face is uh, what's his name's uh, sorry to be disrespectful it's his advanced react course and it use it's called the six fits or whatever and he has the anyways if you guys are familiar with that but yeah it's two different sites and i'll say like how do i log how do i hit one endpoint and the login to both of them you could do a reverse proxy i was having trouble because the this could go on a long conversation i don't want to take the whole thing but i feel like Using something like Kong would be better than trying to do, because it's built on top of Nginx, but it's got a few <laughs> features and stuff like that. So it makes it plug and play. It used to be like, you have to install it with a Docker Kubernetes and do all this like manual stuff where on your own servers or whatever. But now they have a cloud that's like free to use and it get a bunch of, I think you get a bunch of enterprisey, like everything except OIDC, which is login with Google or something like that. If, if you want to get, a, I think you got to pay 250 bucks a month for that or something like that. But uh, yeah. Anyways, it was saying that we, they switched there. They switched from JVM, from Java to, I believe it's JavaScript that they're using now because they were saying it just doesn't scale that well. So that, I feel like that is a crazy, like their scale must be absolutely insane that whatever they're doing on the JVM doesn't scale with the application. Just from experience in a lot of times, in, in most of my professional experience as a React engineer. I've typically either been running with a JVM-backed application on Spring or in Kotlin, and they, the scale is usually pretty wild. So I'm curious what happened to made them do the rewrites. I'm sure we're, I don't know, it must be a unique situation, but I don't know. I'm probably biased, though. I'm a big fan of Kotlin. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll find... I was something I was reading through a bunch of docs. I'll, I'll find it. I'll find it. Yeah, send it over. I'd be interested to read it. Yeah, same here. I'm really curious because also the behavior of the JavaScript is going to depend on the runtime. I'm guessing they're probably going to use V8, but also the execution patterns of that code. So yeah, I feel like scaling JavaScript is serverless has made it drastically easier. And I will say like serverless was when I was primarily focused on engineering, serverless was still new and still being tested. So my experience is a little bit more limited in that area, but it was the last choice that we typically made was going completely backend based to everything JavaScript just because of the scaling issues that we would have with it. I always love reading about it now because I see like how much impact serverless has created for JavaScript ecosystem, especially on the backend to make it scalable. But I love hearing the comparison these days. Oh, Liv definitely improved the, B, <laughs> the runtime yeah. behavior of JavaScript. It's grown by leaps and bounds, especially depending on if you're running it as isolates or a variety of other ways to run it. So I, I definitely want to check that out. We are, we're actually over time for, I'll let Matt keep us going if he can. But other than that, I will have to sign off and thank everyone for participating in JavaScript Jam this week. And actually, I won't be here next week. I was about to say, I'll see you next week, but Scott will be here. And uh, I will hopefully see you in a future episode of JavaScript Jam Live. Sounds good. And I'm also jumping as well. So it was a pleasure having all of you and can't wait to hear from you next week. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye.